We often speak of this winter solstice retreat as a time to embrace the dark and invite the light. And um, it's quite wonderful to have a time of retreat uh, at the same time that there is maximum darkness, the coming of the light, transition in the natural world in the Northern Hemisphere. And for many of us, a time to also have a kind of transition. Uh, Traditionally, the winter solstice was importantly for virtually every culture. And it was actually in some cultures that was seen as the time when the sun god was reborn. It was definitely a time of new beginnings, a time of mystery, of entering into the mystery that uh, darkness yields to light. And that there are these cycles of death and rebirth. Uh, The natural world is quiet and still. And yet, um, new growth is being readied. And so there's this wonderful way that uh, we're taking this time in a way to uh, imitate the earth, to be still, to come into stillness and silence and let that be the basis for learning and exploration and growth. And it happens at the same time that outside of us, kind of paradoxically, in the larger culture, as the earth is still and quiet, humans are (laughs) hectic, This is from um, my friend and colleague, Diana Winston. Some of you know her, she's a spirit rock teacher. And um, she wrote this about, um, she wasn't writing about the holiday season, but more the general tendency towards speed. So she says this, contemporary America, we love fast things. Fast cars, fast meals, microwaves, one-night stands, instant credit, overnight express, cable modems, amphetamines, pizza delivery, make everything. What did we do before email? I don't have time to write letters, read books, visit my friend, play with my little brother, kiss, touch, sigh, dance, relate, eat ice cream, make music, cook, pray, smell, meditate, take a walk, my God, make it all stop. I don't have time and it's running out and I'm running fast and furiously and I want to stop. Ouch, it's painful. Why won't it stop? Can you make it stop? My God, what's God wrong with this country? Have we all gone crazy? We're insane. We've lost touch. We've lost touch. We've got to stop this endless running about. All I want to do is slow down, just crawl on the bed and rock myself to sleep. Not this craziness, not this crazy running about. I am so tired. Please, somebody who have got to help me, stop. <laughs> so we have chosen the alternative. <laughs> and so we, we come into this uh, uh, really place, a very ancient uh, tradition of um, 
going into silence, less activity, stillness. Uh, This is from uh, John Tarrant, a Zen teacher. The ancient basis of spiritual practice is always stillness and silence. We may sit under a tree, cross-legged in a quiet room or by the fire. The most important thing is that we turn towards an intense inwardness. There silence comes to us out of the dawn of the world from the earliest band gathered on the sandstone cliffs looking for the sun to rise, from the hunter waiting in the spinifex grass for the kangaroo. And so we've chosen this as this process of uh, coming at this very special time of year to um, look more inwardly, to let the outer settle for a while. You know. And as I mentioned, the, the opening night, there's something very uh, beautiful and creative in this process, that way that the, the cycles of um, moving away from the everyday and then returning is the basis of uh, cultural creativity. I think it's also the basis for personal creativity because we we get so uh, habitual, fast. We need something like this really to uh, step back and look, what is my life like now? What is, uh, to use the phrase of Mary Oliver, what is this wild, precious life of mine? Where am I? And we need to stop to a large extent to be able to to see, and then in a sense to uh, move on. And it's been, for me personally, it's been very precious. I think probably most of the last 30 or 35 years, I've had quiet time in some way over solstice and or New Year's. And it's, uh, it's wonderful. It can be, be careful, it can become a habit. <laughs> you know. But I, I've loved it to be able to come to this time again when the earth is still and to... Um, go into the stillness. And, you know, we as teachers get, get a lot of the benefit. We get to really enjoy this very much with you, even if we're a little more active. But we also, as you see, we, we are in here with our completely silent, equanimous minds. So our practice, our practice is to cultivate qualities like mindfulness, like metta, like loving, like uh, compassion, like wisdom that help us to, uh, in a way, stop the momentum of our lives and see more clearly, go beneath the surface to uh, have a sense of what's calling us we first seek a certain degree of solitude. The old teaching and the uh, text on the foundations of mindfulness that John was uh, teaching from really uh, last night tells us to go to the forest or go to an empty hut of some kind, find solitude. So for the purposes of this retreat, this is an empty hut. <laughs> but the idea is to find, find a way 
to have that solitude. Uh, I like the sense of uh, where we have very much aspects of community, but uh, we're, we're uh, supporting each other's solitude. And so there's a way we're connected and there's also a way we're alone. You know, and that aloneness is necessary for the training, just to simplify, to uh, take away a lot of the complexities that are often there so we can see at a more, at a more basic level. And so we cultivate uh, mindfulness. We will, over these days, bring the mindfulness more and more to every part of our experience, to our thoughts and emotions uh, tomorrow, to some of the patterns of experience. We're cultivating the kind heart. We're learning better how to meet each moment fully, meet each move mom, uh, moment as a friend, as, as Sylvia Borstein uh, guides us to do. And the training in these qualities lets us be able to respond skillfully. In a way, our practice is very simple. We try to be mindful of what's happening And on the basis of mindfulness and wisdom and our compassion, we respond in the moment as best we can. We respond skillfully. And that's it. This is our practice, moment to moment. So those are the teachings. So go and practice. (laughs) A shorter talk than usual tonight. No, no, just joking. But in a way, that's what we're doing. We're training here to skillfully respond to the moment. You know, I love that, uh, I think about a thousand years ago, there was a Zen teacher who was asked basically, what's the meaning of it all? You know, or what's the meaning of your practice? Or what's the meaning of Zen? And people waited for him to come up with a complicated metaphysical answer like everything is the blinding illumination of the interpenetration of inner and outer as we blend the mind and heart and body in a scintillating synthesis of goodness. <laughs> but he didn't say that. He, he, you know, what's the meaning of things or what's the meaning of Zen? He said, appropriate response. <laughs> right? If you prefer my answer, you can use it. <laughs> But he said appropriate response, and it's what we do really moment to moment on the cushion that brings out the wisdom aspect. But we also, in a way, train so we can bring that out into our daily lives where we're cultivating appropriate response moment to moment. So a lot of it's just to really ask, come to um, increasingly ask ourselves what's wise or what's appropriate in the moment. You know, if I'm sleepy, what's a wise response? If I'm uh, finding negative self-thoughts, what's, what's a wise response, what's a wise and compassionate response. That's what we want to really ask. And in a way, asking the question goes a long way. Probably asking that question is like 80%, we're 80% there, <laughs> right? Because it's really, all of this practice is coming out of more habitual uh, tendencies, right? Where we're somewhat lost to be present, to see what's happening, and then just to say, Uh, what's wise, something challenging comes up, what's wise. 
And this is a, this is a really a, a powerful and really ambitious practice. It's really saying, uh, I aspire to live each moment, increasingly live, live each moment without uh, being lost and without reactivity, without being lost in habitual reactions. Very simple, conceptually, very challenging, right? And we, we and that's why we need to train in this uh, simplified situation. And it takes, it takes a lot of courage, really. You know, I think that's very, very important. And I love the, in, um, in Vietnam in the 20th century, you know, when, when the Vietnam, Vietnamese Buddhists were really trying to, in, in a way, support the uh, anti-colonial struggle or be, be part of it in their own way. They modified this thousand-year-old teaching which said the essence of our practice is wisdom and compassion. And many, many of you know it's often said the Dharma is like a bird that has two wings, wisdom and compassion. Beautiful, wonderful. And they said, you know, they were kind of radical. And they said, we also need courage. Wisdom, compassion, and courage. And I like to think of that, maybe following John's talk, the bird needs a body, not just two wings, <laughs> right? And courage is very much about embodiment and how we are, how we act. And so I like that. You can think of that, the, if you like that, these three core aspects, wisdom, compassion, and courage, which really, I think, relate to, in a way, to mind and heart and body. So I, I love that. I love that they were willing to uh, shift something that had been around for a thousand years in their culture. So I want to talk about different aspects of darkness and light. And I'm going to talk about uh, several of these uh, dimensions and relate them to our practice. I'm going to talk about uh, darkness as uh, the stopping. You know, much like we imitate nature, we stop. I'm going to talk about uh, darkness as being with the unknown, with the mysterious. I'll talk about darkness as being with the difficult and darkness as uh, fertile and, gener- and generative, like, like nature is. And then I'll talk some about how we move into the light. And throughout, I think, we, we can see that in a way... Um, we have to be willing to be with the darkness and that out of being with the darkness can come light. This is from the poet uh, Rilke. I love the dark hours of my being. My mind deepens into them. There I can find as in old letters the days of my life already lived and held like a legend and understood. Then the knowing comes. I can open to another life that's wide and timeless. And you can see in that sense that darkness is, in a sense, neither good nor bad. It's really a quality that has uh, uh, many aspects. So first of all, this sense of, of stopping, you know, and we've looked at that. We, we, we stop the momentum. You know, many of you uh, liked uh, John's uh, metaphor, 
of the train wreck. <laughs> and it, it feels like, you know, this train was rolling down the tracks at a very fast speed and then yesterday came, right? And kind of jumbled around and um, quite a number of you when the groups brought up that metaphor or some other one, I think people used other metaphors that were similar. I can't, I don't know if I can, well, there were, there were connotations of wrecks and messes and problems and you know, swamps and so forth. And um, when, we, when we stop like that and when we, in a, in a sense, imitate uh, the uh, non-human nature at this time, we, we really cultivate qualities of calm and stillness. And these are really necessary to be able to see clearly. You know, the starting point of our practice is to cultivate a certain degree of calm through being with the breath, calming the body, calming the mind, really stopping, helping to, to uh, stop the momentum. Again, to be able to come to see what's there beneath the surface. You know, I know for myself, uh, these kind of retreats have been very precious that when we're, when we're busy, we often don't see what's important. You know, when some of us, like I, I think myself at times, we get overly busy, it almost is a comfortable way of avoiding aspects of ourselves, socially approved, even rewarded, <laughs> right? right? The so-called workaholic is held in high esteem in many places, right? And so we come here and we, we stop that. And we see, we use the body, the breath to, to come to that uh, greater stillness. And we really, in a sense, uh, stop in order to invite what's there in our life to surface. And it's mysterious. You know, we often think, okay, I'm going to come to this retreat when things settle down. I'll deal with those underlying issues. You know, I know that there are these bundled up emotions that will just manifest, right? And I'll see them. And I, I, I know I've had retreats where I said, yes, I'm going to really get at these emotions. I have this big plan. I'll get quiet. The emotions will come. I'll deal skillfully with them. I'll go deeper. It'll open up these new potentials. And of course, that's a... Uh, that's an idea. <laughs> and sometimes it happens. And for me, most of the time it doesn't happen. There's something that when we stop, we really, this really goes to the next theme about darkness. We really have to be willing to open to the unknown, to the mysterious. We stop and we, again, we often have ideas about retreats, you know, and um, I remember one of my earlier retreats, um, well, we were talking this morning, I was interested in transcendence, right? And I thought, I'm gonna just really transcend. <laughs> and, you know, go into the light and have these amazing experiences. And then, you know, then after I'm enlightened, I'll come back and just be a good person. <laughs> Something like that. And, you know, and I, so I, I concentrated really hard and some, some things happened. I'm not sure what they were exactly, but pretty soon, um, pretty soon I got sick. 
couldn't concentrate at all, sat there in the hall, miserable, self-conscious, thinking I was making a lot of noise, and got to look at some unexpected parts of my nature <laughs> and personality. And it was, it, was, it was great, you know, but it was, it taught me um, probably multiple lessons, right? But it's, there's something that we really, we, um, I don't know, I've often thought of uh, coming to a retreat as partly like taking a bath, like a very nice warm bath, but partly also just really seeing what's there and having a radical openness. It's really necessary for this. And our projections and expectations, um, sometimes they have some accuracy. Uh, Often they can be connected with suffering. I think you know that, don't you? Many of you know that. And so there's a way that we have this uh, radical openness. This is an aspect of of being with the dark. Uh, Darkness as mystery, darkness as the unknown. There's a book that uh, influenced me a lot when I was first starting to practice, and I I looked it up um, for this talk. It was from uh, uh, Krishnamurti. He had this book uh, called Freedom from the Known. Some of you probably, it's probably influenced you, and it's a very interesting title for a knowledge-obsessed society, right? Freedom from the Known, what does he mean by that? Well, he was really meaning that, uh, and it's really, I think, like there's this deeper way of knowing which has to go be, be beyond habitual knowing. There's a dip, deeper way of being that John was talking about, that, that kind of uh, touching this deep knowing that is a kind of radiance, a kind of deep presence. And to, to touch those depths, we need to not be so ruled by our habitual concepts, our habitual categories, our stories, our ways of thinking. This is what Krishnamurti said. Now we are going to investigate ourselves together, taking a journey together, a journey of discovery into the most secret corners of our minds. And to take such a journey, we must travel light We cannot be burdened with opinions, prejudices, and conclusions. All that old furniture we have collected for the last 2,000 years and more. Forget all you know about yourself. Forget all you have ever thought about yourself. We are going to start as if we knew nothing. It rained last night heavily, and now the skies are beginning to clear. It is a new, fresh day. Let us meet that fresh day as if it were the only day. Let us start on our journey together with all the remembrance of yesterday left behind and begin to understand ourselves for the first time. So it's kind of this radical openness. And our practice is like that, you know, in a, in a way, our habitual minds don't let us really know ourselves so well, know ourselves so deeply. We don't really know uh, our minds well, our hearts well, our bodies well. I, I found that in practice, particularly uh, when I can look at some aspect of myself for a period of time, it's as if I'm studying myself for the first time. I I remember one retreat I had a lot of anger and I was constantly looking at anger and it was like I had never looked at anger like that. And there have been other retreats where I've never looked at joy like that. 
or fear. And the retreats and the practice has that possibility of having this way of looking very freshly at our experience. We, in a way, we've never done it. We've always, everything's been part of a strategy very often. And now we get to just look and as much as possible, dropping the strategies, the usual strategies of getting what we want or avoiding what we don't want and just being with our experience. One of the beautiful metaphors of practice is listen, is to listen. And we, we see in a lot of, uh, a lot of images and statues, we can see that. We can see some of you know the Tibetan great poet Milarepa is almost always portrayed. Uh, and you can see there's an image of him in the lower hall here. Um, he's always portrayed with his hand to his ear listening to the nature of things. And we can, we can really see our practice as something like this quality of, have this quality of listening. Or Kuan Yin, who's, who's at the back of our hall, is she who listens to the cries of the world. There's something also about compassion, which is about listening. One concrete way to make, to bring this into your practice that I've often used is to start a session, start a sitting or walking and say, I intend to be open to whatever arises. Kind of to, I have found that very helpful, you know, at times when I thought, okay, I'm just going to get back where I was the last sitting, right? Anyone? None of you do that, right? (laughs) You know, we have these strategies. Okay, I'm going to make that kind of that experience happened, that, that really that calm, that bliss. And, and it's been very helpful for me to say, I'm just, I'm going to, you know, stay with the practice fully, but I'm going to be radically open. I'm going to say, I'm going to be full and be open to whatever happens. It's a way of making this sense of uh, being with the darkness as unknown and mystery practical. You can do that. To be with the dark is also to learn to be with the difficult, to be with what's hard. And we've had a lot of this the first day or two for many or most of us. We've had the sleepiness or the habitual thoughts or taking care of the train wreck or busy mind or restlessness or whatever, residues of from the past, and we, uh, we learn to work with this. We learn different ways of working, uh, working skillfully with the sleepiness, for example. We might track it. We might, of course, have some rest if we need the rest, but a lot of times the sleepiness isn't really about needing rest. It can be there because this is new or with just the difference between the busyness and the quiet is is confusing to our organism so we can stay with it. Sometimes it's helpful to, uh, to walk uh, vigorously, take to a walking very vigorously to work with, bring the energy up because some kinds of sleepiness are due to kind of an energy imbalance between, between uh, our energy and our concentration. 
They can be out of balance and that can, that can result in a kind of sleepiness. As John was, was saying, a key part of our practice is to be willing to be with what's uh, not comfortable. It's, it's coming to have a greater comfort with discomfort, you know? And uh, uh, for me, when I was first practicing, uh, this was not what I bought into. I bought into bliss and understanding. And if we put in our promotional materials for Spirit Rock, come to Spirit Rock and learn to be comfortable with the uncomfortable. <laughs> I don't think we do that, do we? <laughs> we don't put that in our promotional literature. We talk about compassion, wisdom, love, understanding. But a really big part of this <laughs> is learning to be comfortable with the uncomfortable, you know, and uh, learning to be with the unpleasant in terms of thoughts, body experiences, emotions. There's a really nice cartoon which shows a very ardent meditator sitting and saying, today I will stay in the present moment unless the present moment is unpleasant, in which case I will eat a cookie. It actually is a, very, is a very deep teaching to actually be able to be with the unpleasant because as I said, the heart of this practice is to really uh, learn how increasingly to be non-reactive. Non-reactive typically means pushing away the unpleasant or, or reactivity means pushing away the unpleasant and grabbing hold of the pleasant. And increasingly, we learn how to just be with what's happening without that pushing away or grabbing hold. And the idea is that we actually can't really see clearly when there's that reactivity. Because it's habitual, we go into habitual modes. And the teaching about this, I think, is right at the heart of the teachings of the Buddha, and I think the teachings of other approaches and traditions as well. And there, the, one of the teachings where this is expressed most clearly is the teaching called the teaching of the two arrows or sometimes called the teaching of the two darts. And it is a, is a powerful guide to our practice in this way, in the context of being with the difficult. It goes like this, uh, the Buddha uh, asked his practitioners, everyone has some unpleasant experiences. What differentiates a practitioner from a non-practitioner? And he said, everyone has unpleasant sensations in the body, we sometimes call pain, unpleasant emotions, unpleasant thoughts. We have difficult interactions with people at times, we're treated unfairly at times. We have difficult things happen with people we're close to that bring us pain and so forth. Everyone has that set of experiences which the Buddha said was like being shot by an arrow. And in a sense to be human is to be shot by this arrow. He said that's the first arrow. And both the practitioner and the non-practitioner 
are shot by the first arrow. So he said, what differentiates the non-practitioner from the practitioner is that the non-practitioner, because of the presence of the first arrow, tends to shoot a second arrow as if that would help. And what does that look like in experience? It means that I receive, I have painful experiences and I react. Maybe I tense my body, I tense, I contract, I maybe blame myself for having the pain, whatever. You know, and similarly, I may have uh, a difficult experience, maybe with a, a friend at work, whatever. I have difficult emotions. Someone says something to me that seems mean and I react by blaming the person or judging the person or going into emotional reaction. Or I'm treated unfairly and there's a reaction. And what the Buddha said is actually that reaction could be called shooting the second arrow. And that second arrow, if the first arrow in a way is pain, the second arrow is suffering. That's really what we mean by suffering. It's actually a more precise way of differentiating between pain and suffering and making sense, I think, of why the Buddha talks about overcoming suffering. He's not talking about getting rid of pain. He's not talking about getting rid of the first arrow. But the teaching is that it's possible to practice and learn to shoot the second arrow much less and at times not at all. In other words, and so we train. The training is, part of the training is that we learn to be with the unpleasant and open up when it's wise, when we're not doing damage to our body, we open up for a time, as John was saying, to unpleasant sensations and learn to be with them. I like to extend this kind of practice to when I go to the dentist. First arrow, (laughs) you know, and I can, it's it's actually a wonderful practice. I mean, you can practice in all sorts of places. I I happen to think about the dentist, you know, and when I'm sitting there and I see like one of those foot long needles coming towards me, you know, which is going to be helpful. (laughs) And I find thoughts developing, that needle's coming closer and find anxiety or fear developing, I can, can watch it, right? And say, let me just be, notice it, not to shoot the second arrow further, and then let me just be with the sensations of that needle and not shoot the second arrow. It's probably intermediate practice. You know, we start with being with sensations which are somewhat unpleasant or with emotions. But the, the point of the teaching is, and it's a very important teaching, is that we want to really see when we're shooting the second arrow, which could be telling a negative story, judging ourselves. And here we have, we'll have plenty of opportunities. To me, this is actually a version, this is a version of the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. Because it's saying, you know, sort of the root of suffering is this reaction and not being able to be with the difficult. And the other side of it would be that we grab hold of the pleasant. I heard uh, 
just a few weeks ago, Sylvia Borstein gave a uh, Jewish version of the teaching of the two arrows, which in honor of Hanukkah, I thought I would give tonight. Um, It's not a traditional one. It's one that she learned from her grandson. And it goes like this. Okay, so um, they were at a wedding and at the wedding there was traditional Jewish food and in particular there was gefilte fish which uh, in my own personal experience I I couldn't stand (laughs) and her grandson thought it was the most vile stuff on earth. (laughs) And but it goes further. With the gefilte fish, one is supposed to have it with horseradish. And so Sylvia's grandson came up to her and said, now I know how you can make something terrible more terrible. This is the teaching of the two arrows. (laughs) And so, uh, I don't think I need to say any more. So this this is a really big part of our practice. We wanna really look out when there's something challenging. Track when there's a reaction to something unpleasant being there and really can track it. One of, you know, when I work one-on-one with people, almost the most common guidance I give, I think, I think there's, there are probably two, the two most common guidances I give, guidances, I don't know. Um, what I say most commonly <laughs> is first, watch the stories you tell yourself particularly watch the negative stories you tell yourself, which is a form, can be a form of the second arrow, and then try not to shoot the second arrow. The, that uh, guidance goes a very, very long way. And it's right at the heart of our practice. Yeah, and it's not easy. The last aspect of darkness I want to talk about is the way that the darkness, in a sense, is uh, generative, and fertile, just like the earth, that when we're with the darkness, and we could think of being with the darkness in the senses I've given, of stopping, being with the unknown, being with difficulty, all of those aspects of darkness, when we stay with them, are generative. They are creative. Something positive, beautiful, can come out of the darkness in a very mysterious way. This is a Wendell Berry. To go into the dark with a light is to know the light. To know the dark, go dark. Go without sight and find that the dark too blooms and sings and is traveled by dark feet and dark wings.
This is from the poet Rilke, which points to the way that when we're, we stay with the unknown or we stay with difficulties, something can come of them. He, he wrote a letter, the famous uh, letters to a young poet. Uh, Rilke was uh, 29, writing to the young poet who was a mere 21. <laughs> and he said, uh, and the, the young poet had basically said, I want to work out everything in my life. And Rilke said to him, have patience with everything that remains unsolved in your heart. Try to love the questions themselves, like locked rooms and like books written in a foreign language. Do not now look for the answers. They cannot now be given to you because you could not live them. It is a question of experiencing everything. At present, you need to live, live the question. Perhaps you will gradually, without noticing it, find yourself experiencing the answer some distant day. And so we stay with the darkness. We stay with the unknowing. We stay with the difficulty. And there can often be something very beautiful which comes with that if we're willing to stay balanced with the difficulty. And I think we know that from our practice. We can stay with uh, something challenging and we, we have insight out, uh, that comes out of it. We have equanimity that may develop. You know, I was thinking of my, uh, my father who uh, had a lot of difficulties in his life. He... Um, had uh, psoriasis, which covered his body. He had been in uh, the World War a, as a very young man and had seen a lot of, lot of death. When he was in his late 40s, he started to go blind, probably from having done experiments that were not... Uh, experiments uh, as a government scientist with um, chemicals that were what not, not well ventilated. Hard to know. And he started to go blind. And I, f- I found that as he stayed with the blindness, and he was blind the last uh, close to 35 years of his life. You know, as he stayed with that, something opened up in his heart. And there was a kind of a, a softening and a beauty. And it made me think of you know, the way that sometimes blindness is uh, many of the great seers in many cultures, the wise beings are blind. And sometimes when there was the, not the outer vision, there's the, there's the inner vision. You know, and I saw, I saw those kinds of, of fruits there. And there can be this, this way that we, we uh, stay Stay with the darkness and there are gifts that come out of it. Tremendous gifts. There's a beautiful story that, that I love that I heard from uh, Rachel Naomi Remen of a, a young man who had cancer in his 20s and had a, a leg amputated. And he was very bitter about it. He had been an athlete and very physically active and she did uh, work with him and asked him to do a drawing. And when he did a drawing right at the beginning of her time uh, with him, he drew a picture of a vase and it was just cracked. It was dark, there was a dark crack going through it. And he stayed working with her for a year and a half and he actually came to 
do work with uh, a lot of the people who had had loss. You know, and there was a, a young woman that he worked with who had a, f- a family history of breast cancer. And I think she had lost her breast in her 20s. And she was very depressed. And he went in with her. And one day he took off his uh, artificial leg and he just started hopping around. And, and it, broke, it broke her depression. <laughs> She, he, he just started hopping around and she started laughing. They later got married. <laughs> and then at the, at the, uh, near the end of about a year and a half, because he was, you could see what was happening. He was willing to go into his difficulty and there, was, there were gifts that were coming out of it, right? There was something happening. He was giving gifts to others, to himself. And at the, at the end of a year and a half, uh, uh, Rachel asked him to look at the original drawing and he looked at it and he said, it is incomplete. And he got some yellow crayons and he started drawing sh- shimmering lines coming from the cracks in the vase. And he said, this is where the light comes through. From the cracks, from the wounds, from the difficulties. And so there's that sense that, you know, out of the darkness, uh, in, the, in all these forms, out of being with difficulties, out of stopping, out of uh, being with the unknown, uh, there, there comes the light, just like the light comes more and more to the earth as the earth is still. And there are ways that all of, these, all of these work in certain ways. We stop, we develop calm. The mind gets more calm, it starts to be more open to light. When, the, when that calm gets deep, the mind can be, can be filled with light. Or we can think of the lives of uh, many people who had difficulties and there was somehow light which came out of people's uh, people's difficulties. Um, There's a story that I love from um, Martin Luther King. This was when he was just beginning to work in Montgomery, 1955. He was like 25 years old. And he was getting, um, at a certain period, he was getting telephone calls. At that point, they didn't have answering machines, you know, 1955. And he would pick up the calls. And there was one night when it was midnight and his uh, very young daughter and his wife were asleep. And he had just come back from probably a meeting. And he picked up a f- uh, the phone and, and someone said and used the, the N-word, uh, we are tired of you and your mess now. If you aren't out of this town in three days, we're gonna blow your brains out and we're gonna blow up your house. And somehow this took him off center. And he stayed, he stayed with the difficulty. Though he stayed and he said, <clears throat> he sat at his kitchen table and he drank a cup of coffee. And this, this, is, what he, this is what he later said. Because at first he tried to, he said, I can't call my parents. I can't have my parents help me. They're 200 miles away in Atlanta. 
And he said, his, this is what he, he later reported, I bowed down upon, over that cup of coffee. I never will forget it. I prayed a prayer and prayed out loud that night. I said, Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. I think I'm right. I think the cause we represent is right. But I must confess that I'm weak now. I'm faltering. I'm losing my courage. And it seemed at that moment that I could hear an inner voice saying to me, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. And I will be with you even until the end of the world. He said that he heard the voice of Jesus telling him to keep going. He said he, he, he knew from that time that he would never be alone. That there was a presence with him, you know, in that, in that uh, vocabulary. And actually, he said that at that time, my fears began to go. My uncertainty disappeared. He was willing to be with it and stay with it for a while. And actually what di- did happen a few days later, his house was bombed. No one was injured, which was very fortunate. He was um, told about the bombing while he was at his church. And people were um, amazed at the level of equanimity that he had. He later said that that experience had given him the strength to be balanced and equanimous with that very difficult experience. And so the, you know, we experience that light coming in when we're present more and more, when we can be with experience. This is, this is a wonderful Mary Oliver poem about this quality of the light coming. And this is very much a solstice poem, even though I think it's probably written about the summer. But it's about her, her difficulties of stopping, you know, uh, and just being present. She says, when I am among the trees, especially the willows and the honey locust, equally the beech, the oaks, and the pines, they give off such hints of gladness. I would almost say that they save me and daily. I am so distant from the hope of myself in which I have goodness and discernment and never hurry through the world but walk slowly and bow often. Around me the trees stir in their leaves and they call out, stay a while. The light flows from their branches and they call again. It's simple, they say, and you too have come into the world to do this, to go easy, to be filled with light and to shine. And there's really this birthright that many traditions speak of, that there is, as we become more quiet, and we, we touch, in a way, a deeper knowing, as we do the practice, as we're willing to be with the difficulties, the unknowing, and so forth, we touch a deeper knowing that has the quali- quality of radiance that John was speaking about, which is a kind of presence in which we're not trying to have anything happen. In fact, there's a deep uh, stillness to that sense of presence. And in a way, it becomes a witness for what comes through. 
there's a sense, and this is talked about a lot in the, in many traditions, in the uh, Thai forest tradition, which is one of the roots of our practice here. It's called the primal mind or the radiant mind. This is from one of the great uh, teachers, Achan Man, who uh, was the teacher of Achan Cha, who was the teacher of Jack Kornfield. He said, the primal mind is radiant and clear by nature. But because passing corruptions come and obscure it, it doesn't show its radiance. The mind is something more radiant than anything else can be, but because passing defilements come and obscure it, it loses its radiance like the sun when obscured by the clouds. But don't go thinking that the sun goes after the clouds. Instead, the clouds come drifting along and obscure the sun. So we are the sun. <laughs> and so there's that, there's that sense There's that sense of what's possible when we really stay with this practice, when we stay with that sense of unknowing. In a way, we we open up to a a greater knowing. And we also can really cultivate the light of what we sometimes call awakened qualities. We cultivate mindfulness, we cultivate metta. When metta gets strong, it feels like light feels like an inner light. And it's said that when we're liberated by metta, we glow like the moon. (laughs) So as as we practice with the darkness and light in a way, we see how they're related. We see how we, in a sense, are willing to be with the dark in order to see. We are willing not to know and a deeper knowing emerges. We're willing to be with difficulties and out of that a greater ease occurs. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Isn't that interesting? And we see, we can see that when we are with, the, with dark in that way, light comes through, there's generativity. It comes at its own time though. So we have to have that quality of patience and courage. So I thought I'll end with a, a poem. And I think this is also by Rilke. Let this darkness be a bell tower. Quiet friend who has come so far Feel how your breathing makes more space around you. Let this darkness be a bell tower and you the bell. And as you ring, what batters you becomes your strength. Move back and forth into the change. What is it like such intensity of pain? If the drink is bitter, turn yourself into wine. In this uncontainable night be the mystery at the crossroads of your senses, the meaning discovered there. And if the world has ceased to hear you, say to the silent earth, I flow. To the rushing water speak, I am. To the silent earth I flow. To the rushing water speak, I am.
So perhaps these uh, um, dimensions of being with the dark and evoking the light can be useful in your practice. Can say, okay, I'm gonna be with the unknown. (laughs) Okay, this is difficult, but I won't shoot the second arrow as best I can. Or if I shoot the second, I won't shoot the third. (laughs) Or if I shoot the sixth, I won't shoot the seventh. (laughs) Or let me just stop and so forth. So thank you so much for your kind attention. And we have now uh, again about half hour for walking. And then we'll come back with uh, sitting, probably still uh, a shorter sitting and then uh, chanting together. So thank you again. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.